Hello everyone, welcome or welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host Jade and thank you so much for joining me. Wow, my voice just went out. And thank you so much for joining me today. Last week we talked about the unidentified serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. And this week we are going to be talking about the Cam family murder and the wrongful conviction of David Cam. Now, this case is a lot. Um, This case has three trials, two convictions, lots of lawsuits, acquittals, and questions, and lies. This case is a lot. So, we're going to just get right into this. So, let's get started. David Cam was born in New Albany, Indiana, on March 23rd, 1964. David's first wife was his high school sweetheart, and together they had a child after their marriage ended. He met a woman named Kimberly Starr Wren and married her in May 1989. That same year, he applied to become an Indiana State Trooper and was eventually assigned to the emergency response team. Bradley, David, and Kim's first child was born in 1993. David was having an affair with a woman named Stephanie McCarthy while Kim was pregnant. They met at the gym where she worked, and David was a member of that gym. Stephanie had a boyfriend, and when they broke up, David moved out, leaving Kim and Bradley behind. He definitely was not hiding his affair from anyone. He was seen out with her at restaurants and at NASCAR racings. He just didn't care, I guess you could say. Kim was at home caring for their child, and Kim would then tell David that she was pregnant again. Kim suspected David of having an affair, and when she questioned him about it, he told her he wanted a divorce, despite the fact that she was five months pregnant. Jill Cam was born on February 28, 1995, and as time passed, David and Kim chose to reconcile and raise their children together. David and Kim began building their dream house on Lockhart Road in Georgetown, Indiana. And fun fact, the road Lockhart was named after David's mother's side of the family, so they were pretty well-known people there. Things started to change around this time, and things were looking well for both David and Kim. But, you know, as the saying goes, once a cheater, always a cheater. David began seeing an old friend, Michelle Voiles, in June 1997. Their relationship was described as friends with benefits, and they would occasionally hook up in the back of David's police car. The relationship came to an end when she discovered David was married. It stopped her, but it didn't stop David. He developed a relationship with Lisa Korfhag, a Cam family friend, and was engaged to a fireman. When she married, their relationship ended. She, again, stopped, but David didn't. At this time in David's career, things began to change. There were multiple complaints about David, including an incident 
in which a 19-year-old accused David of assaulting him. David had been cleared of any wrongdoing, but he was now assigned to casino duty, which he did not like. In 1999, he slept with the wife of one of his co-workers in the back seat of his co-worker's police car. David started a relationship with 29-year-old Tammy Rogers, but after a few weeks, she decided she didn't want to be in a relationship with him anymore. David Cam had approximately three months left on his contract with the Indiana State Police when he decided to work full-time for his uncle, a salesman. Kim worked in insurance and David worked for his uncle, and they were both making pretty good money while raising their two children in their new home. That, however, did not last forever. David was playing basketball in a church rec center in Georgetown, Indiana on September 28, 2000. These games took place every Thursday at 7 p.m. After the game, David drove back home at 9.30 p.m. While driving home, he pressed the button to open the garage, and what he discovered was shocking and unexpected. David discovered his wife, Kim, shot in the head on the garage floor. David opened the car door and discovered his five-year-old daughter, Jill, sitting upright in the car with her seatbelt on and a gunshot wound to her head. Bradley, his seven-year-old son, was seated behind the driver's seat, his body draped over the seat as if he was attempting to flee. David assumed his son was still alive because he wasn't shot in the head, so he grabbed him, placed him on the garage floor, and began performing CPR. But Bradley passed away. David then immediately dialed 911 to report that his family had been murdered. His former co-workers rushed to the crime scene. Kim was discovered with no pants on, and they thought that sexual assault could have been a motive. There was a gray sweatshirt in the garage with the word BACKBONE written in all caps on the collar. David told police that the sweatshirt was not his and that no one in his family or anyone he knew owned it. This indicated to authorities that whoever murdered Kim, Jill, and Bradley had left an entire sweatshirt behind. The cops take the sweatshirt, bring David down to the station, and begin questioning him. David was the most obvious suspect because he discovered his entire family was killed and it's like the number one true crime assumption or law is that when someone's spouse has been murdered the first person you look at is the living spouse david told his former co-workers who were looking into the case everything that happened he stated on September 28, 2000, Kim drove Bradley and Jill home from their after-school activities. According to their neighbor, she and the kids arrived home at approximately 7.35 p.m. Kim's shoes were found on top of her Ford Bronco, which was odd because why were her shoes on top of her car? Why is anyone's shoes ever on top of their car, actually? And when police asked David about it, he said that he thought it was weird because 
She never drove with her shoes off, so he has no idea why her shoes would be on top of her car. David was dressed for basketball in a gray shirt and blue basketball shorts. Remember that when David picked up Bradley to resuscitate him, he was covered in, covered in blood. Therefore, when David picked him up, Bradley's blood was transferred onto David's clothing. Police began saying that, you know, people around here have been saying, you know, that they heard the sound of gunfire when you were home at around 9.20 p.m. David kept saying, this isn't right. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. They told David that there was blood on his shirt. And the DNA analysis revealed that the blood came from a high-velocity blood spatter. And this only happens as a result of gunshot blowback, which is a result of shooting someone at close range. Now, what's off about this entire thing is that the individual who said that the blood spatter on David's clothes was caused by high-velocity was a crime scene photographer, not a blood spatter expert. I'm not sure if they got a blood spatters analysis expert on this in that moment, but it would have made sense to do so. According to the autopsy report, all three victims died as a result of gunshot wounds. They were surprised to discover that Jill had been sexually abused roughly 24 hours before her death. There was also a mop and a bucket at the crime scene, as well as a strong odor of bleach. Unidentified fingerprints were discovered on the exterior of Kim's Ford Bronco, but because she was parked in a public parking lot, police brushed it off and, you know, thought, oh, it's just a public parking lot with many people walking by. Someone could have, you know, touched the car, and since she has been murdered, we are going to ignore it. Police have always believed that David was responsible for his family's murder from the very start. They look no further than David. On October 1st, 2000, three days after the murder, David Cam was arrested and charged with the murders of his wife and two children. His trial started in February 2002, and he pleaded not guilty. The prosecution now had to piece together a theory. They came up with theory number one, in which David returned home from basketball, murdered his family, attempted to clean it up, contacted the police, and then pretended that he had just returned from basketball and discovered his family murdered. They examined the cell phone records, which revealed that David called from the church at 7.19pm on the evening of the murder. Verizon Wireless came out in court and indicated that there was a glitch and that the timestamps were incorrect. So, on the record, it said he made the phone call at 7.19pm, but in fact, it was actually 6.19pm indicating that he was at home before leaving to play basketball. David was playing basketball, as I stated, with 11 other people. He wasn't just playing by himself. And all of those 11 people said that David was there the entire night. 
He never left, and it wasn't like he didn't show up. No, they stated that he was there from 7 p.m. to 9.15 to 9.20 p.m. when the game ended. The medical examiner stated that the time of death for Kim, Bradley, and Jill was around 8 p.m., an hour after the game started. The prosecution now had to establish a motive. And motive number one was that, you know, eventually they discovered David's multiple affairs. In total, he had 12 affairs during his marriage. This, of course, did not help David because the prosecution used this information and claimed that David was unhappy in his marriage, that he did not want to be with Kim, that he didn't want that type of commitment, so he just murdered his entire family. A few weeks before Kim's death, Kim told a friend that, quote, history was repeating itself, end quote, and her friend simply assumed it had something to do with David and his affairs. The prosecution presented roughly 12 women with whom David had affairs with, whether it was a full-fledged romance or simply a hookup. The second theory was that David sneaked out of the basketball game, murdered his entire family, and then returned with, without anybody noticing. David's defense stated that, okay, they don't know how to explain the affairs, but the blood on his shirt was because he picked up his son, therefore the blood transferred. And again, the phone call that Verizon had to clear up the malfunction. After nine weeks of trial, the jury deliberated for 29 hours, and David Cam was found guilty of three counts of murder and sentenced to 195 years in prison on March 18, 2002. The Indiana Court of Appeals overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial in August 2004 because they felt that introducing his numerous affairs during the trial was unfair and should not have been allowed. His bond was set at $20,000 three months later in November 2004 and he was released and placed under house arrest. The prosecutor, Keith Henderson, refiled charges against David Cam the same month. In early 2005, they ran the sweatshirt again, this time finding an unidentified male DNA on the sweatshirt with the word backbone in the collar. They processed the DNA using CODIS and found a match to Charles Bonet, a man from New Albany, Indiana. Backbone was Charles Bonet's prison nickname, and he had a history of being violent towards women. And he, and he even stole women's shoes, and he was even dubbed the shoe bandit by the media. He assaulted multiple women and even tried to kidnap three women at gunpoint in 1993. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison for armed robbery and released seven years later. So he was released in 2000, three months before the murders. Charles was on parole at the time of the Cam family murders. 
They examined the palm print on the vehicle and found that it matched Charles Bonet. When it was revealed that there was DNA from a suspect other than David, the prosecution was attacked. Rightfully so. They missed this. How do you miss this? I don't know. This was like important piece of evidence from the very beginning. The prosecution's excuse was that nothing came up when they quote-unquote tested it for DNA the first time. Which is a lie because Charles was a convicted felon. Therefore, when they ran the print and the DNA, it would have come back because his DNA was already in CODIS. Charles was brought in by police for questioning. Charles stated that he had no idea who David or the Cam family were. He admitted that the gray sweatshirt belonged to him, but claimed that he donated it to charity. And it just so happens to be at a crime scene along with his DNA. They interrogated Charles a different time, and this time he tells a different story. He told several stories, actually. He told five stories, actually, but this is what he stated. He stated that he was at the Cam house on the night of the murders at 7 p.m. because he was selling David a gun. Charles claimed he was the one who placed the shoes on top of the vehicle. Charles stated that they met by chance. They did not speak by phone. It was just like fate brought them together. He claims that he handed the gun that was wrapped in the gray sweatshirt. When Kim, Jill, and Brad arrived home, David followed the car into the garage, and Charles claimed to have heard three shots. He claims that David tried to shoot him, but the gun ran out of bullets or the gun was jammed. He continues by saying that Charles chased David into the garage. When David entered the house, Charles slipped and fell on Kim's shoes, which were now off of her feet. So he picked them up and placed them on top of the vehicle. Charles indicated that he looked inside the vehicle to find Brad and Jill, which is why his handprint was on the vehicle. On March 5, 2005, he was arrested and charged with the murders. They not only obtained Charles' DNA from the gray sweatshirt, but they also recovered the DNA of a woman named Mala Singh Mattenly, who was Charles's girlfriend at the time. She was interviewed and indicated that Charles returned home after midnight on the night of the murders. Mala claims that on the day of the murders, Charles left at 6 p.m., saying he was only going to, you know, go out, help a friend, and he'll be right back. Mala reported that when he left, she went to his mother's house and watched some TV. He returned later that night after 12 a.m. after she had gone to bed. She stated, quote, he was worked up, he was breathing heavily, end quote, and then he showed her the gun. 
She became terrified and told Charles to leave the house. The next morning, she remembered Charles asking that all three of them should watch the news. Mala ended the relationship two weeks later. When asked about her relationship with Charles, she said, quote, This is one relationship that didn't need to happen. End quote. Now, because she was Charles's girlfriend, her DNA was obviously on his clothes because she wore some of his clothes. When she was questioned about how the blood got on the sweatshirt, she explained, quote, I am diabetic and I have to test myself so blood could have gotten on it that way, end quote. However, when asked how the blood got on his clothes and her DNA, she told two contradicting stories. The first was that she never wore his clothes and that the blood got on it because she was on her menstrual cycle and Charles had given her oral sex when she was on her cycle. Police asked her three times if Charles had ever shown her the gun. As she previously said, in the beginning, she said Charles showed her the gun, and then this time she said no. She then claimed that she was the only person at home on the night of September 28th, after claiming she was watching TV with Charles's mother, so they could not be certain about her alibi. Charles Bonet and David Cam were both charged as co-conspirators in the murders of Kim, Brad, and Jill. Investigators searched for the gun in September 2005, but it has never been recovered. Charles Bonet was found guilty of murdering the Cam family as well as conspiracy to commit murder on January 26, 2006 and sentenced to 225 years in prison. On January 16, 2006, David's trial began and the prosecutor, Keith Henderson, claimed that David Cam had been molesting his daughter, and he killed the family to cover up his crime. This was not agreed upon by the medical examiner. The medical examiner stated that there was a single blunt force object to her genitals, but it was not from sexual abuse, and nothing indicated that she had ever been sexually abused. Jill's attack caused her to have blunt force trauma injury. The prosecution portrayed David Cam as the shooter, and Charles was the one to sell him the gun. David Cam was convicted a second time on March 3, 2006, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. On June 26, 2009, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned David's conviction once more, ruling that the prosecutors should not have allowed testimony about David molesting his daughter in the absence of evidence to support those claims. Keith Henderson refiled murder charges against David Cam in December 2009. The Indiana Court of Appeals ordered Keith Henderson to step down 
in November 2011. After he agreed to publish a book on the Cam family murders, and this deal was signed prior to the overturning of the second conviction. David Kem's third trial started in Boone County on August 22, 2013. This time, they explored a different motive for the murder, life insurance. For the first time, Charles Bonet testified against David, claiming that David led him out of his house before shooting his family and attempting to kill Charles. They reveal new DNA evidence this time. Dr. Richard Eichelenboom, I'm so sorry if I pronounced that wrong, testified that he discovered touch DNA consistent with Charles on the clothing of both Kim and Jill Cam. Charles's DNA was discovered on Kim's undergarments, her arm, an abrasion on her arm, her broken fingernail on Jill's shirt. Stacy Uliana, a defense co-counsel, argued that if Charles attacked the family and there was DNA to show it, the chances of David murdering his family were unlikely. There was a fourth version of the crime put together by the prosecution because there was additional DNA to indicate Charles Bonet was at the crime scene. The judge ruled in court that the jury could only convict David if they felt he aided and embedded Charles Bonet during the murders. So basically, if he helped, but didn't actually murder them. The defense objected to this concept since there was no evidence that Charles and David knew each other or had ever met. Another issue was that the judge's instruction to the jury violated the double jeopardy law, which is what I, when I first heard of this case, I was like, mm, double jeopardy, double jeopardy, double jeopardy, because you can't, double jeopardy means you just can't be convicted of the same crime twice. David was already acquitted of the conspiracy charge during the second trial. David's defense argued the fourth theory of the crime. And David Cam was found not guilty on all charges by a jury on October 24th, 2013. Thirteen years after the murder, three trials and four theories, all these, all three trials cost a total of $4.5 million. Of course, there is mixed emotions, mixed feelings regarding the verdict in any case, and David Cam's case was quite momentous. Many neighbors were surprised by the not guilty verdict in the third trial considering David had been previously convicted twice. According to one local, quote, a lot of people are, just like I am, completely shocked, and a lot of people think that he should not be out, end quote. And since this case received so much attention, it also brought light to many examples in which people were wrongfully convicted of a crime and it made people question, you know, like how many people have been wrongfully convicted of a crime and are sitting in prison to this day? Some jury members were questioned, quote, do you believe they intentionally wanted to convict an innocent man? End quote. One juror said, quote, I would hope not, but I sense that the state police had a hard time admitting 
they made a mistake. It's kind of scary to contemplate that they were so afraid of admitting a mistake that they'd put an innocent man in jail for the rest of his life, end quote. Now, this case received a lot of backlash for a variety of reasons, because it's not every day that one person goes to trial three times for the same crime, but the most notable of which was the blood spatter, because the blood on David's clothing was from trying to save his son's life, but police claimed it was from shooting the gun at close range, and that was told to them by a crime scene photographer, not a blood spatter expert. That's like me giving you legal advice if you want a divorce, and I am not a lawyer, nor have I ever been divorced. It makes no sense. The perjury admission was the next issue in this case. In the first two trials, Robert Stites, a former police officer, admitted to lying under oath. And I don't mean one lie. I mean, like, Ooh. Robert was hired by a forensic blood expert to take photos and take notes of the crime scene. He admits to lying to the previous jurors about his job as a blood spatter analysis. He also revealed to the other jurors that he worked as a crime scene reconstructionist, which was a lie. He added that he investigated the crime scene with a macro lens on his camera and a magnifying glass. He also admitted to never working on a case as a police officer or a photographer before the Cam family tragedy. Tragedy. Why do I struggle to say that word so much? He also admits to failing college chemistry, never taking physics, and not taking any graduate classes since 1990. And obviously, to become a blood spatter analysis expert, those classes are very important. He claimed to have marked 20 locations in the garage as blood spatter, but never tested them. They were eventually discovered to be petroleum-based products. He stated in his notes that bleach was used for cleaning up the blood, but then claims that he never smelt blood. As you can see, this man is a liar who lied about every single thing. So, where is David Cam? David is now a case coordinator for Investigating Innocence, a nonprofit organization that conducts criminal defense investigations for inmates as well as assistance to people who have been wrongfully imprisoned. David Cam is also friends with members of the jury from the third trial. Kim's parents launched a civil lawsuit because David was set to earn $625,000 from Kim's life insurance policy. David Cam sued the Floyd County and the state of Indiana for $30 million in 2014, and the case was settled for $450,000. He filed another action and received $4.6 million in settlements in April 2022. David Cam is still living in Indiana and has since remarried, and Charles Bonet is still serving his 225-year prison term. End of episode thoughts. As previously stated, 
There was a lot that went wrong in this case. Everything the police department said to support their version of what happened was wrong. Eleven men, for crying out loud, eleven men saw David with their own eyes, and it did not fit police's narrative. The blood spatter was a mess, as well as the trial, the liars, the evidence, and Charles Bonet telling five to six different versions. This case is terrifying because it shows that when people really put their mind to something and do anything to where they create a theory to fit their narrative, as like what happened in this case, an innocent person goes to prison. They were set in, set in stone on the killer being David, but oh my gosh, like, do the work, do the correct investigating. David Cam has been through a lot from losing his family to being accused of murdering them, having three trials, being convicted twice, spending years in prison, and his colleagues, his former colleagues, I should say, were willing to throw him in prison for the rest of his life. I'm glad that kim brad and jill got the justice that they deserved um and i and i feel for their family for losing a loved one as well as they lost their grandkids as well and of course david david lost his entire family as well this system failed david the same system that has failed so many people and this case really lets you know that i mean 11 people said he had an alibi the DNA wasn't his, yet he was drugged through that criminal justice system. It made no sense to consider him a suspect. But I'm glad that he's out of prison. He's away from all of that. He's found love again and is living his life while also helping people that have been in his situation. And with that, today's story comes to an end. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, every Thursday there is a new episode at 7 a.m. bright and early just for you. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, leave a review and rating so that I know what you think of the show. Or you can DM me on Instagram at Criminal Curiosity Pod. The Twitter is Crim Curiosity and TikTok is Criminal Curiosity Pod. That is all that I have for you today. Please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time. Bye, everyone.